Back in the 1960s and 1970s, young people from the UK, Europe, America, and elsewhere hopped on bus services or into their own converted vehicles to travel from Europe to South Asia. This epic overland trip often lasted from several weeks to several months or even years long. Along the overland route, travelers would gather in popular spots like Istanbul, Kathmandu, and Goa. In those days, the route was known as the Overland Trail, but today, many know it as the Hippie Trail. Alpaca Pals, today we're going to discuss the history of the Hippie Trail. And heads up, I've got two Katies on the show today. We've got producer Katie, who you've heard many times before, as well as our wonderful guest, Katie Lang Slattery. Okay, producer Katie, do you know anything about the Hippie Trail? Have you heard of it before? Honestly, I have never heard of it before until you brought it up, so I'm very excited to hear more about it. So where did the Hippie Trail actually go? Well, there wasn't one exact route that every traveler on the trail followed, um, but most travelers left from London or Amsterdam and then traveled through Europe to Greece and then up through Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nepal, and India. Some travelers made it even further than that, even as far as Singapore and Australia. Whoa, okay, so it almost sounds like the 1960s version of the kind of backpacking route that a lot of people follow around Southeast Asia these days. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. From what I've read, I think the Hippie Trail was basically the backpacking trail like of those days. Okay. Although it wasn't quite as developed in terms of tourism as today's popular routes are. So yeah, that's the Hippie Trail. Instead of our usual interview format today, I'm going to share some of the research I've done on the history of the Hippie Trail, like how it came to be and why it eventually became obsolete. And we're also going to hear from two people who traveled the Hippie Trail themselves, Katie and John. Last year, when I had the idea of covering the Hippie Trail on Alpaca My Bags, I started digging around online to see if I could find anyone who had firsthand experience traveling it. I came across the site of Catherine Lang Slattery, who told us that she prefers to go by Katie. She blogs about her experiences traveling the world, and she's published a memoir about her travels on the Hippie Trail. Katie traveled the overland route with her husband, Tom, for almost exactly two years, from September 1971 to September 1973. Everyone has always called me Katie. I think of myself as an artist and an author nowadays. Some people say I'm a Renaissance woman. I'm not sure if that's true, but I, I like the image. After emailing back and forth with Katie, she suggested that I also chat with John de Figueredo. Like Katie, John also has a website where he has documented the four months that he spent on the Hippie Trail. In August 1969, John and his friend Brian left the UK in a 10-year-old Mercedes, traveling overland through Europe and then across to Asia and India before flying onward to Australia. I'm John de Figueredo, not what you'd call a typical Anglo-Saxon name. 
My parents packed me off to boarding school at the age of eight, which may account for some of my slightly more eccentric uh, personality. <laughs> and I finally retired 10 years ago. Katie and John both experienced the hippie trail at its peak, which was from the 1960s to the mid-1970s. But the trail actually started to emerge in the 50s. The book First Overland by Tim Slusser describes an early overland trip. In 1955, some undergraduates with barely any money spent seven months traveling by Land Rover from London to Singapore. 18 months later, a British chap named Oswald Joseph Garrow Fisher and his bus that he called the India Man came along with the idea to run an overland bus trip from London to India. There isn't tons of reliable information about Oswald and his bus, but I did manage to find a few archived news articles from The Statesman and The New York Times from back in the year 1957, and they share some really fun facts about this initial bus trip. This fellow Oswald considered himself to be an entrepreneur, and so he took the idea of a commuter bus trip, and he just really, really ran with it, because he decided he was going to offer the most epic overland bus service imaginable. Yes. (laughs) In 1957, Oswald started advertising that his India Man bus service would bring people from London, England to Calcutta, India for about 85 pounds, which is 115 US dollars. And if you wanted to do the return trip, it was only an extra 65 pounds. I couldn't find details about what the demand for the trip was like, but Oswald did manage to gather 20 passengers who joined him for the first trip to Calcutta on the bus. They left from London on April 15, 1957, with Oswald himself at the wheel. He drove over 20,000 miles to Calcutta and all the way back, and the trip took 110 days. Apparently, the passengers slept overnight in hotels and guest houses, but in some cases had to camp if there wasn't other accommodation available. My mental picture of this Oswald guy is pretty hilarious. (laughs) Did you see any pictures of this guy? There aren't pictures of him. There's definitely pictures of the bus. Like the (laughs) amount of photos that I found from the hippie trail that just blew my mind. But this Oswald dude... You can visit his grave. You can visit his grave in London. Oh, cool. And it's kind of funny. Like, I did get the sense talking to both Katie and John, but also, like, I was talking with my own dad. And I was like, Dad, like, wouldn't people think that it was kind of crazy to, like, get on a bus from London to Calcutta? And he was like, really, up until the 90s, like, people weren't nervous or scared of travel. Wow. This is a new phenomenon of people being, like, very concerned about safety. So look at the link I just sent you. These are just like regular people that were like, I'll go to Calcutta. And these people are dressed for, I mean, it seems like business casual, like they're wearing their pea coats and little high heels and long pencil skirts. Like this is not what I would have expected to see of the type of person entering this bus. Right. According to the New York Times, a lot of rumors were spread around while the India Man was on its first journey to India and back. 
There were claims that the bus had gotten lost somewhere in Turkey or Iran. And at one point, people believed that the bus had been captured by bandits and that everyone on board had been killed. Oh, my God. The British embassy in Tehran was so relieved when the bus showed up there with everyone safe and well that they apparently threw a cocktail party for the group of travelers. After that first successful trip, Oswald decided to continue offering the overland service. It was really smart to offer because up until then, trips like this would be prohibitively expensive. Air travel at that time was considered a luxury that a lot of people couldn't afford. The bus route was a more affordable and a more exciting option. After the success of the India Man, more bus companies emerged, like Penn Overland and Swagman Tours. These companies came around in the 1960s, and they went to places like India, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, and Nepal. Some people have heard of the Magic Bus, which was a particularly popular service, and it picked up travelers in small private buses in Amsterdam. Just like on the India Man, travelers would journey on the bus, staying overnight in cheap guest houses or camping in tents. There were hotels, restaurants, and cafes along the way, and travelers on the route tended to network with each other as they traveled east and west. When John went on his trip in 1969, he and Brian drove part of the route themselves, before eventually hopping on one of these overland buses source of information about where to stay and so on was often word of mouth from other travellers. You find out an awful lot from other travellers. It's amazing. And one of the things they told us about was in Tehran, there was this wonderful hotel called the Hotel Amir Kabir. And I guess the Hotel Amir Kabir was what you could now call a backpacker's hostel. So we went there, despite the fact that we had a car and we could have gone to a campsite, but it turned out that staying at the hotel at Amir Kabir was no more expensive than staying in the campsite. It certainly wasn't, shall we say, five star. While we were there, buses came in and people uh, came to the hotel. And this one, the Safaris Overland, we believe that the company had two buses. <laughs> So it wasn't exactly a huge company, but I did find reference to it. Uh, do you know of the book, The Hippie, Tr the History of the Hippie Trail? Yeah. This particular bus that we were on, this actual bus is mentioned in that. Wow. In Tehran in October 1969. And that was, that was the bus we, we got on. And I think they wanted $80 to take us to Delhi. And we negotiated down to $60. The irony was there was another bus that came in about two days later who offered us seats for $30. <laughs> Sadly, that bus had a very poor um, mechanical reputation. Oh. But again, the irony was that our bus broke down more than their bus did. <laughs> <laughs> John also described what the atmosphere on the bus was like. As I remember it, the atmosphere on the bus was very cordial. I can't remember any people who uh, we didn't get on with, at least at some level. But if you read the very brief comments I've got about the buses, you'll see that there were a couple of people we sort of avoided. <laughs> but we, we had some very good friends on the bus. And when I got to Melbourne, I stayed with one of the people on the bus. And as I say, I married one of the people on the bus. Two of the people on the bus came to our wedding 
So uh, we obviously got on fairly well with these people, but I'm not in contact with any of them. Like, have you ever seen the movie Almost Famous? Yeah. You know, like the scene where they're all on the bus, like smoking weed and singing Elton John? Yes. That's That's what what I I imagined. imagined. (laughs) (laughs) Hotspots started to show up along the trail where travelers would gather, hang out, and sometimes stay long term, forming colonies. One of the hippie havens on the trail was in Goa in southern India. In her book, Katie describes staying there for over a week in March 1973. In a letter that she wrote home to a friend, she described what Goa was like at that time. More than a week was spent in Goa, a paradise set on the tropical shore. This tiny state belonged to Portugal up until 10 years ago, and so the people there are more westernized in some ways. Goa will soon be discovered by the rich, but now it is only a paradise for hippies and driving tourists like ourselves, known as vanners. They like to rent small thatched bungalows or park their vans in the shade of a tree and settle in for weeks and months. They share the wells with the locals, throw their refuse to the crows and the pigs, eat shrimp and fish at the local eateries, and swim nude on the beach. Many also spend their nights shooting speed or smoking hash. Security is bad because of the high concentration of foreigners who let their guard down in this idyllic spot. Goa wasn't the only hippie haven on the trail. Another one was Kathmandu, Nepal. Travelers would congregate on Freak Street, which was a small street lined with cafes and guest houses. Before the mid-1970s, cannabis was legal in Nepal, so the traveling hippies would hang around on Freak Street, smoking dope and making their plans. Today, Freak Street isn't much of a hub for travelers anymore. The area was damaged by a massive earthquake in 2015. But some budget guest houses and original cafes, like the famous Snowman Cafe, are still there. If you're ever in Kathmandu, Freak Street is a 20-minute walk south of Tamal, which is the current tourist center in the city. So the overland buses were one way to travel the hippie trail, but others traveled the trail in their own vehicles. Katie and Tom, for example, lived in their Volkswagen for a full two years. In Scotland, actually, Tom had built a big wooden box that we put on top of the Volkswagen. And we filled that with toilet paper and bottles of bleach. So I used diluted bleach water to wash all our vegetables. As those things were gradually used up, then we had room for some souvenirs. (laughs) I'd like to say that in the entire two years that we were traveling in that van, we never stayed in a hotel. And we very seldom ate in restaurants. Now, that is different than many of the travelers that went across. Even the ones that traveled in Volkswagen vans, they weren't outfitted with the same comforts that ours had. I had a two-burner stove, and I had a closed water purification system, and I had a small refrigerator, little under-counter refrigerator. So I could cook. And I love to cook. And for me, that was one of the most enjoyable things we did was always going to the market. And I also bought little cookbooks along the way. 
So I would practice cooking the style of the country we were in. I did pretty much all the cooking for two years as well. One of the reasons people traveled in their own vehicles on the Hippie Trail was that it was a super economical way to see a lot of the world on a really small budget. I can tell you that Tom allowed $10 a day for both of us and all expenses <gasps> for every day for the whole trip. Including gas? Yeah, everything. Wow. Everything. And we stayed in that. He had these little notebooks. He cap in his shirt pocket all the time. He had these little spiral notebooks and he would write down every single thing we bought. I mean, he's an engineer, right? <laughs> he had them all arranged by category. There was car uh, costs and there was tourist costs and there was anything that was a souvenir he put under Katie. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was credited to my expenses. <laughs> Everything was so inexpensive in Turkey and Afghanistan and all along the route that we saved enough out of our budget that we were able to buy Persian carpets with the surplus on the way home. Do you still have them? Yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> Katie, as you know, travel for me doesn't always go according to plan. Oh, I am well aware. I have heard enough stories on this podcast to know that mishaps can happen when anyone travels. Absolutely. And when they do, you need travel insurance. And I couldn't recommend World Nomads more as your go-to. Travel insurance also protects the communities you visit. Some countries' medical systems have limited services and capability. World Nomads helps ensure that you don't become a burden on the local people and economy if you need medical help. Alpaca pals, you know this is music to my ears. World Nomads policies are simple and flexible. They cover over 150 adventure activities, including higher risk activities like scuba diving and trekking. Benefits limit, conditions and exclusions apply. Be sure to read your policy wording. Learn more and get your travel insurance quote at worldnomads.com. The link is in our show notes. Travelers who were on the hippie trail in their own vehicle would camp every night. According to Katie, if you self-drove the trail, you didn't tend to run into people who traveled on the overland buses. The travelers on the bus and the travelers who were self-driving didn't cross paths all that much, and their experiences were a little different. All the overland travelers would gravitate toward the same places. And so, especially in Istanbul, but then also in Iran, um, in Afghanistan, at all the little places where we stopped, there would always be other travelers from Western countries. And mainly, they tended to be either from Great Britain or Australia, sometimes Canada, and in the, very seldom, but occasionally uh, German or French travelers. And Tom was the networker. He's the supreme networker. And when we'd get to this campgrounds, he would get out and he would go around the campgrounds and talk to everybody. And that way you would share information. He would find out the next best place to stop, uh, where there were service stations with gas, you know, what kind of the hazards to look out for. 
occasionally we'd he'd bring people back to the camper where I would finish, you know, and we'd have a glass of wine together or something after dinner and chat. That was always fun. Other couples would be traveling in the vans, but single people tend to go on those buses more than in the vans. So one interesting bit of Hippie Trail history is the fact that Tony and Maureen Wheeler, the founders of Lonely Planet, famously wrote a guide to the Hippie Trail that was based on their own experiences traveling it. And this first guide became the cornerstone of their publishing empire. For any alpaca pals who don't know, Lonely Planet is a guidebook publisher that's been around since 1973, and they've now published over 120 million guidebooks. Tony and Maureen's first guide, which was called Across Asia on the Cheap, covers most of the hippie trail, from Istanbul to Indonesia and even East Timor. I read a couple excerpts from the guide, and it's a really fun read because it gives you such a cool glimpse into what travel was like in the early 70s. Some things I noticed is that some prices have changed and others haven't. For example, the book mentions that you can get a freak bus service from London to Istanbul for about $30. I think you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find a trip that cheap these days, although you might be able to snag a Ryanair flight for about 30 bucks. I also noticed that Across Asia on the Cheap shows how world geography has changed and how war and politics have evolved. For example, at that time, it wasn't possible to travel in northern Vietnam, but you could travel freely in Afghanistan. One of our nights in Afghanistan was actually spent traveling from Herat to Kabul. We didn't stop at Kandahar on the way, unfortunately, but we did have two nights in Kabul. While you could sort of smell the sweet smell of hash almost everywhere that you walked down the streets, for some reason, and I can't remember why I wasn't with Brian or with anybody else, I took myself off to go and look at one of the uh, forts on the top of a hill by myself. Uh, and I found myself at the head of a large group of of small kids. I felt a bit like the Pied Piper walking up there, and there was this, was the odd dog as well. <laughs> and I got photograph uh, photograph of all these kids who lo- seemed to love having their photograph taken. Of course, we didn't have a word in common, so I couldn't really communicate with them. But it was just lovely. I just really enjoyed being in Kabul. In many of the accounts that I've read from people who traveled to Afghanistan, the Khyber Pass is noted as a really memorable experience. The Khyber Pass is the most northerly and important of the passes between Afghanistan and Pakistan. The pass connects Kabul with Peshawar and has historically been the gateway for invasions of the Indian subcontinent from the northwest. In the 1890s, it was described by author Rudyard Kipling as a sword cut through the mountains because it's such a narrow gap. We've all heard about the Khyber Pass, but probably more impressive than the Khyber Pass is the Kabul Gorge, which is, of course, fully in Afghanistan. Kabul is at 1,800 metres and Jalalabad is at less than 600 metres. And you go down this, you get to the, sort of looks like the edge, and the road goes through a series of hairpin bends, and you can see the river 
which is the Kabul River down at the bottom of the gorge. And it's quite frightening. And it is super, it's super impressive. It's just amazing to the extent that you can't easily take a photograph of it. And even, even as I say it, I'm sort of getting goosebumps. It's the history. You just know that in this place there were so many uh, battles fought and there are, there are forts up there. It was just magic, the Khyber Pass. Katie also found the Khyber Pass particularly memorable. In fact, she told me a really fascinating story that revolves around it. There was a couple brothers that were from the United States that were traveling around the world at that time. They were walking around the world. They were trying to get a Guinness Book of Records thing to walk around the world. And they were walking with a mule and a cart. We heard all about them in Istanbul when we were there at the campground. That was one of the stories that was going around. When they were walking through the Khyber River Gorge, excuse me, the Kabul River Gorge, it's very steep and very narrow, twisting road. They were beset by Afghani thieves who thought they were carrying money, and they shot them. One brother was killed. He was shot through the heart, and the other brother was shot through the lung and left for dead. And then he was found two days later by Afghan soldiers and taken to the hospital and then after some recuperation in, in Kabul, he was sent back to the Mayo Clinic near his hometown to, to recover. Now, this is the story we heard in Istanbul. So we had heard about them, the Kuntz brothers. And when we were driving back, just after we came down out of the Khyber Pass, right near the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan, we saw these two men, young men, with a mule and a cart that had big painting all over the side walk around the world. And it was like seeing ghosts. We thought they were dead, at least one of them. So we immediately pulled over and we talked to them for about 30 minutes. And it turned out that the one brother, uh, Dave, was the original brother. The other young man was his third brother. There were actually three brothers. When he got home and started to recover, his third brother, his other brother, decided he would finish the walk with him. And they flew back to the exact spot where the ambush had taken place and started the walk again. One thing that I was curious about in interviewing Katie and John was what they thought about the fact that the route they traveled is now called the Hippie Trail. I think that many people, especially in my generation, love the nostalgia of the 60s and the 70s and the hippie culture that arose during that time. Since this travel route is now known as the Hippie Trail, it's really easy to assume that everyone traveling it was a hash-loving, counterculture bohemian. But this actually wasn't the case. While yes, there were stereotypical hippies on the trail, and the trail was filled with hippie havens, not everyone identified as one. Katie and John both told me that they didn't think of themselves as hippies. 
We were travelers. We thought of ourselves as travelers, not as hippies at all. Neither of us had ever used cannabis at that point. I was a school teacher and he was in a profession where they checked. Uh, he's a marine engineer under the Coast Guard. So there was no way either of us would have used cannabis at that point because it could mean our careers. And then we made a great deal of effort not to dress like hippies. We always cleaned up. Tom would shave and I would make sure his hair was cut when we crossed borders. And we really did get through border crossings much faster than some of the other people. (laughs) Although Katie and her husband didn't identify as hippies, they definitely met hippies on their travels. Katie told me about a few of them. We also met a, a Danish family that were traveling with a Land Rover and a trailer and three children. I think they were seven through 15. And that was amazing. We met them in Kathmandu and actually traveled with them for about three weeks because they were having a lot of engineering problems with their trailer hitch and Tom was trying to help them. We spent a lot of time with the young girl who was 15-year-old Danish teenage girl and she a couple times went off just with Tom and I sightseeing and we really liked her a lot. She was great. One of the stereotypes about the hippie trail revolves around drug use, particularly hash. When I was reading Across Asia on the Cheap, one thing I found fun was that the guide celebrates the fact that along most of the hippie trail, it's really easy to find quote-unquote dope. Here in Canada, we tend to call it weed these days. There's a whole section that explains where and how to get your hands on weed. At the time, weed was legal in Nepal, and so Kathmandu was noted as an especially good place to go if you wanted to smoke it. I had a laugh because one of the remarks in the section on weed reads, Some people seem to see the overland route as an excuse for a long-term high. My first personal and direct experience was in Herat, which is in the west of uh, Afghanistan, soon as we crossed the border. People produced hash, and there was one room in the fairly seedy hotel we were staying in, uh, which was full of all sorts of people in all sorts of states of, um, I suppose, intoxication. Uh, I can remember an enormous amount of laughter uh, and looking back on it, well, I can't remember what was going on, but I'm fairly sure that the jokes were not in the slightest bit funny. (laughs) Uh, Somewhere along the way, Brian and I acquired, uh, I I seem to remember that 10 shillings, so $1 was the the price we paid for a block of hash. (laughs) There is even some writing on the website of what it was like under the influence for a for a sort of non-experienced uh, <laughs> drug taker. And I can remember you couldn't hold a thought. I'd start writing something and I'd write the sentence and I'd get to a certain point and I'd think, what, what's this all about? So I'd start again at the beginning of the sentence, reread it. <laughs> ah, yes, and then continue with the sentence. So <laughs> it, was, it was that sort of experience. It wasn't an experience that I disliked, but it wasn't a, an experience I particularly liked. So it, uh, it didn't happen anymore after that. I think that's a pretty universal experience. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> 
Despite this experience with hash, John says that in reality, drugs weren't why most people were traveling the hippie trail. He explained that he and Brian were on the trip for the same reason that many of us travel, to experience other cultures and to see the world. According to other accounts that I've read, some people on the hippie trail were in search of enlightenment, and some felt that the community of hippies was part of a larger social revolution. But most people went on the trail for the reasons that John did, because they wanted to connect with local communities across Asia. We were there because it was an experience. We could see other cultures. We could go and uh, do things that we wouldn't under normal circumstances do. So possibly calling it the hippie trail is the wrong idea. But after all, we we did go through some fairly uh, interesting experiences together. There were drugs around and there were people who were there for the enlightenment, the sort of spiritual enlightenment. When John and I talked, he let me know that his friend Brian, who he traveled the trail with for four months, sadly passed away in 2001. He was only 58 years old. John, of course, has many memories of Brian from the trip, including when Brian almost caught fire over a cooking stove. When we got to the uh, Asian borders, Brian and I were extremely popular because we had a primer stove. Now, I don't know whether you know about those primer stoves. They, you, you pump like mad. And normally they run on kerosene. And kerosene is it's relatively difficult to get it to start burning. Our one ran on petrol. Now, you can see that there's a slight problem here. The first time we ran into problems was in Yugoslavia. And Brian's cooking the evening meal. And as I say, he's not a little person. And he's pumping badly to get this stove to work. And woof, a jet of flame came out from where the the pump pit was. Brian, to his credit, grabbed a fire extinguisher. And I, to my credit, can say that we were impressed that we even had a fire extinguisher. And he put it out. He got slightly singed. Anyway, I took it all to pieces, which was my role in life. And I sort of manipulated it and put it back together again. It worked better than ever then. But we still had this uh, while we were traveling on the bus. We'd, we'd kept it. So at border crossings, there would be a line of people with billy cans to put on the stove to warm them up so that they could have tea, coffee or soup. As I say, we were very popular with this uh, this stove. I've, I've cheated on the website. I've got a... a a photo apparently of a stove on fire and it looks just like it but it wasn't ours i didn't have the presence of mind to take a photograph of brian on fire unfortunately (laughs) in the late 1970s global political changes disrupted the hippie trail mainly the Iranian Revolution and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, closed the land route from Europe to India. Around the same time, commercial flying started to become more affordable, and so young travelers started flying directly to their destinations instead of traveling overland. As a result, the golden years of the hippie trail came to an end. 
I felt a lot of kinship in talking with Katie and John about their travels. I can relate to their adventurousness and to their desire to learn about other cultures and other people through travel. And I can also relate to how impactful these travels were in their lives. After their travels, they both went on to have marriages, children, careers, and of course, more travels. Over the years, they saw how travel changed, especially as the internet and mobile phones came around. Nobody had uh, personal computers in those days. I mean, you just didn't. There were no cell phones. You couldn't Skype. You couldn't Zoom home. And I love that you can do that now. When I travel now, I'm always texting people at home. It's so wonderful to be able to do that. But I can't help but feel a little bit that it's totally spoiled and decadent. (laughs) I mean, I've read some memoirs of travel with young people, and they get so upset if their Skype doesn't work and they can't (laughs) talk to mama. It's been decades now since the hippie trail ended, but it's clear that those months that Katie and John spent journeying across Asia are treasured memories. Both Katie and John have been bringing these memories to life by sharing them online. If you want to read their blogs, they are both linked in the show notes of this episode. And you can also buy Katie's memoir of her trip, which is called Wherever the Road Leads. So Katie, what do you think? Do you think if you'd been around in the 60s and 70s, you would have gone on the hippie trail? It's hard for me to say, but I can't help but want to say yes. I would love to travel around the world in this way, (laughs) especially in a van. Yeah. And camping? Like, I can't go wrong with camping. Yeah, I absolutely would. I think that's why I was so fascinated by the hippie trail, because I think like in another life, I absolutely would have gone on it. I mean, I'm not even going to lie to you. In grade 12 through to my first two years of university, I went through a hippie phase. In fact, I had a dreadlock at one point. One (laughs) lonely dreadlock. It's not something I like to talk about very often, but I will be honest about it. And there was a long time where I thought like I would go to Woodstock and be like the most hippiest person of all and have a great time there. If I could get past the anxiety and the planning of being a type A person, I'd go. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's interesting because traveling in those days, you you honestly couldn't be so type A when you traveled because there was only so much planning you could actually do. <laughs> like, it's not like you could be researching online the destinations ahead of time. You would have a guidebook and some maps and that's about it. It's hard for me to imagine, but I want <laughs> I to imagine I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you absolutely could. I think we both could. I want to give a huge thanks to Katie and John for sharing with me their memories. I spent over an hour chatting with them both, and their stories and their knowledge helped a lot with putting this episode together. In the show notes of this episode, you can find links to all the resources and books that I used in researching the hippie trail. I also included a link to the PDF Across Asia on the Cheap, just in case you'd also like to read a guidebook from the 70s. And there's also a couple links in there where you can click in and see really cool photos that were taken along the hippie trail. So be sure to check those out. 
Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and produced by Katie Lohr. Do you want to support this podcast? If so, there are a few ways that you can. You can leave a review on your podcast app or show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bag safely and soon. 